0: We're going to read from the Word of God. um, It will appear on the screen. If you're following in your own Bible, it's Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him. Cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions you however will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure When the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, "'To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Good morning. As John's
1: alluded to, I did very much enjoy the globe party last night. Um, Unfortunately, I did leave my voice there, so you might have to bear with me a little. Um, I do have a glamorous assistant who said he'll come and read this for me if it gets really bad, so please do wave at the back if you can't hear me. Let me begin by asking you a question. Have any of you ever done any sailing? Now, I've done it a few times before, and I really enjoy it. And actually, each time you do it, you get a little bit more confident at doing it. But the thing is, you never forget that first time you have a go at it. You have that moment where you've got your harness on, you've had your safety briefing, and bearing in mind this was 20 years ago, safety briefings didn't take very long back then. <laughs> you then get attached to a rope, and the instructor says to you, right now turn around and back up to the edge. And then and he then says, all you need to do is lean back and sit into the harness, it will catch you. And you think, right, okay. Oh. Now I'm not even that scared of heights, but actually, the thought of sitting back didn't fill me with confidence. So I thought, I'll just, I'll just have a little look back and see what I'm sitting above. Now for me, it was a cliff edge in Wales. And as I looked down, I thought, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> I'd been told in the briefing that the rope I was attached to was strong enough to hold a minibus, but suddenly it looked very, very thin. I'd also complained when the harness went on that it was too tight, but now it felt too loose and all of a sudden I wanted a lot more information about what I was actually anchored to. Everything seemed to be saying, this is a bad idea. But then you've got this instructor looking at you and smiling saying, it's fine, you're gonna be fine. It feels like two worlds are colliding. There's what I can see and what I feel and what I'm being told. It feels like they're completely at odds with one another Essentially, this is where we find ourselves in Genesis 15. Over the last two Sundays, Nigel has taken us through one of the most significant stories in the Old Testament. The story of God calling Abraham to step out in faith. In Genesis 12, we see God promises Abraham children, land and blessings. But two chapters later, things don't seem to be going as Abraham would have expected. What he sees and feels doesn't seem to be matching what God has promised. In chapter 15, Abraham is at least 80 years old and he still has no children. He's become wealthy, but the promised land still feels like the Wild West. How's it ever going to be his? And if by some miracle he does get it, How's he expected to keep it? What God has promised and what Abraham is experiencing don't seem to be on the same page. Now surely this is a feeling that many of us can relate to. The Bible is full of promises of what God has in stores for those who trust in him. He promises eternal rest, joy, peace and much, much more. But sometimes it feels like there is a huge gap between what he has promised and what we see there are times for many of us when life just feels heavy when it feels hard how do we trust God not just when life is peachy but when things are really difficult well if you can relate to that struggle this morning I'm really glad you're here because I've got good news for you you see This passage isn't about Abraham stepping up to some extra-special level of faith It's about a God who meets his people in their doubts This is not a cold and distant God who says, Just pull yourself together would you Abraham? How dare you doubt me? You'll actually find in this passage a loving father who says, I've got you When I make a promise I keep it. In this passage, God meets Abraham and subsequently us in our doubts in three ways. Firstly, God tells us his promises. Secondly, God illustrates his promises. And thirdly, God backs up his promises. Now you see that the the very beginning of this chapter, verse one starts with the line, after this. So before we can look forward to see what's in chapter 15 we need to first look back to see what's being referred to. Now Genesis 14 is pretty full on. If it were to be a movie I think I would call it, I was going to put on a good voice for this, I don't need to, (laughs) the battle of nine kings. (laughs) Five of the local kings decide they don't want to get pushed around by this foreign eastern king of Elam anymore, But unfortunately the king of Elam is not so keen on their rebellion So the king of Elam gets together with three of his other kingmates and comes marching into the land There's four kings on one side of the valley of Siddam and five on the other There is a battle of nine kings The four kings led by the king of Elam are victorious and they crush this uprising of five kings They go on a bit of a rampage after they've won and they go to the city of Sodom which unfortunately is where Abraham's nephew Lot lives Lot and his entire family and all their possessions are carried off to be slaves Now what follows is pretty much the Old Testament equivalent of Zero Dark Thirty Abraham leads a relatively small group of soldiers into enemy territory in the dead of night and rather than in this case storming Osama bin Laden's compound they carry out a hostage rescue mission. Now thankfully the mission is successful. Abraham somehow manages even though he's massively outnumbered to win the battle and he takes Lot and all his possessions and takes him back home again. Here's the thing though, this was a great victory for Abraham but I'm sure he is acutely aware that there is a massive difference between a one-off nighttime victory in a special ops type way compared to the military might required not only to take the promised land but to keep hold of it. What does he think is going to happen to all those other four kings when they know what happens? Are they really gonna take this defeat lying down? Surely Abraham knows that once these four kings have regrouped, they're gonna come back. And just like they did for the other five kings, they're gonna come and wipe them out. Abraham responded to the call of God in chapter 12. And he did it based on promises which now look completely impossible. I'm sure that in this moment, God seems very small. And the king of Elam and his other kingmates seem very big. So how does God respond to Abraham's doubts about what God is going to do? Well, let's continue reading verse one. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. I'm calling him Abraham, just in case you're confused because it says Abraham in your Bible. In this passage, he's called Abraham. Later, God changes his name to Abraham. That's generally how he's known throughout the rest of the Bible. So I'll refer to him as Abraham. So that's why I keep calling him Abraham. The Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. God doesn't chastise Abraham. He recognises that, humanly speaking, Abraham does have something to be afraid of. But then he reassures him, I am your shield, your very great reward. Don't miss the tenderness of these words. Don't worry, I've got you. I know that things are scary, but I will protect you. I am your shield, the thing a soldier takes into battle to take blows for him. The shield is hit, so the soldier is not. I am your reward. I want you to see that when you have me, you lack nothing. Now how many of us need to hear that this morning? God doesn't promise that following him will make life easy. But he does promise that he will be with us in those troubles, in pain, in sickness, in marital troubles, in anything else that life throws at us. He cares about us and he meets us in our doubts. He calls us to look at him and trust in his promises. The greatest reward we can ever hope for is not the things which God gives us, it is God himself. He is our great reward. It's right that we should enjoy the good things that God give us, gives us but more than that, We should enjoy him. So how does Abraham respond to these majestic words we hear in verse one? Bearing in mind that later on in the Bible, Abraham is referred to as a hero of the faith. Well, I'd say this is not a typically heroic response. Look at verse two and three. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what could you give me since I remain childless? And the one who who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. God's just told Abraham, I am your great reward. And Abraham's response is, yeah, but what can you actually give me? You promised me children, and here I am old and childless. Anything you do give me is going to end up with one of my servants. This hero of the faith simply cannot reconcile what he sees with what God is promising. How's God going to respond this time? Well, if it were you or I, I think we'd be running a little bit low on patience right about now. But thankfully, God is not you or I. One second. One second. Look with me at verse four and five. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham responds to God, Like a child who feels their parent has let them down. You said this would happen, but actually this is happening. And yet, with unwavering patience, God restates his promises. And look at verse 5. You can almost picture God putting his arm around Abraham and saying, Step outside with me, Abraham. Look up at the stars. Aren't they beautiful? Can you count them? No, well, you're not going to be able to count your offspring either. He does what I said it's point point two. He illustrates his promises. God knows sometimes his promises are so amazing, they are difficult to comprehend. So he illustrates them for us. Do you see yet again how tender God is in dealing with doubt? He doesn't gloss over or chastise Abraham's doubt. He patiently restates his promises, and then he shows his promises. He lifts Abraham's eyes and our eyes to heaven, and he calls us not to look at our problems, but to look at him. If, like Abraham, you're struggling with doubt, don't just pretend everything is okay. Bring your doubt before God. Then allow him to meet you in your, in your doubt doesn't want a load of unquestioning robots to follow him. He wants those who come to him and say, I believe in you, but help my unbelief. One of the reasons that we're so quick to beat ourselves up for doubting is that we think that doubt is the complete opposite of faith. But actually that's not the case. You see, Abraham's doubts are born out of faith in God's promises. He doesn't say, I don't think you're real, I don't trust you at all. What he actually says is, you've promised these incredible things and I believe you, but I just can't see how it's gonna happen. What I'm seeing and what you're promising just don't match up. The same is true of almost all of the doubts of Christians today. Often we trust the promises of God, that he is good and that he is in control. But then hardship comes, ill health, money troubles, bad relationships. And like Abraham, we begin to ask, God, if you're good and you're in control, why on earth is this happening? My circumstances don't seem to be measuring up with your promises. For most Christians, our greatest doubts are actually born out of faith in God's promises, in his character. So don't be too hard on yourself. Recognise that a Christian's walk is both a mixture of faith and doubt. We can see that in Abraham's response. Look at verse six, probably the most famous verse of this passage. And he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now when I went absolutely It wasn't my strength of faith in the rope that stopped me falling down. It was the rope. (laughs) I had to have enough faith to lean back. But from that point on, it didn't matter how much I trusted in the rope. It was the rope that held me. In the same way, it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. (laughs) Abraham's, it's, it's not like... At this point in the passage, Abraham's faith suddenly levelled up and God said, oh, that's it. Abraham, now you've, recre- you've, I've, you've I've got to the required level of faith received for salvation. His faith was completely surrounded by doubt. That's not how it works. It's amidst these doubts that God ta- that Abraham takes God at his word and holds on to his promises. He says, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I'll trust you. And God said, because of that, you are saved. Abraham trusted the promises of God. He trusted that God would give him offspring, and specifically he trusted that one day, one of his offspring would rise up to be a saviour. Abraham was looking forward to a promised saviour. We have the great privilege of being able to look back. So Abraham has shown his trust in God and God has said that on the basis of this faith, not what you do or how good you are, but upon your faith in me, fulfilling my promises, I declare you righteous. I brought you out of your father's house to give you this land to possess How's Abraham going to respond now? Verse 8. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? This hero of the faith. God telling him that the land will be his. And Abraham's just like, but how? Well, let's consider our third point as we see how God responds to yet another doubt. God backs up. His promises. The chapter finishes with this strange ceremony at the end. Now in modern times when we're really serious about making a promise we like to write things down. I was thinking about this the other day, strangely enough the greatest evidence that I could give you I'm married would not be my wedding video, it wouldn't be showing you my wife, it wouldn't be showing you my wedding ring, it would be giving you a piece of paper he would be giving you my marriage certificate. We love paper, however in ancient times paper was not so easily available so promises weren't written down, they were typically acted out. That's what happens in the rest of chapter 15. This agreement or covenant between God and Abraham is acted out. Now I'm told by historians that this ceremony was usually carried out by a powerful king and a lesser king who the powerful king had conquered. They would take some animals and kill them and then cut them in half and lay them out on the ground with the animal parts facing one another. The idea was the powerful king would then get the lesser king to walk through between the animals and as he walked through he would say all the parts that he was promising. So it would be stuff like I promise to pay my taxes on time. I promise to fight for the King when he needs me. I promise to be loyal. In a very pictorial way, he was essentially saying, if I don't keep my side of these promises, may I be like these animals, dead and cut in half. Imagine if When you clicked that button, when you fill something in on a computer that says, I agree to the terms and conditions (laughs) of this agreement, you had to walk between animal carcasses. I think we'd probably read those a little more carefully. It spells it out quite clearly, doesn't it? This is a very important agreement or covenant. So Abraham sets everything out just as God has commanded. In verse 12 it says, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick dreadful darkness came over him. I wonder whether at this point, the magnitude of what was happening was dawning on him. Whether he was thinking, am I really gonna have to be killed and cut in half if I don't keep my side as a covenant? But here's the incredible thing about this passage. In the vision that follows, it is not Abraham who walks between the animal parts, it is God. Look at verse 17, behold, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Time and again in the Bible, God appears in smoke and fire and here he is appearing in Genesis 15 before Abraham and he's visually and symbolically saying, I will bring about what I have promised, even if it kills me. If this covenant is broken by either party, I will bear the curse. This is the very heart of the Christian message. It is about God dying to enable him to keep his promises and fulfil his covenant and bless his people. You see, around 2000 years later, another great darkness fell on the land as the Son of God died so that what was promised could be made reality. It was not God who broke the covenant, but it was man. God bore the punishment that his people deserve so that we can enjoy the blessings that he had earned. Just like Abraham, our salvation does not come from what we do or how good we are, it comes from trusting the promises of God. Trusting Jesus as our only way of salvation. A few weeks ago, when the so-called petrol crisis was in full swing, I got a phone call from my daughter. She's not here this morning, she's up in EK. She was on the bus to school. And because of the queues for the petrol station, the bus was at a standstill in traffic. She said to me, Dad, I'm going to be late. What should I do? I said, don't worry about it. I'm sure loads of people are going to be late. Traffic is bad everywhere. I'd come and pick you up, but I'll just have to sit in the same traffic you're in and you'll end up getting there even later. She reluctantly said, OK. I said, just, just enjoy the bus journey. You Have some time to yourself. She was like, OK. And I thought that was the end of it. Ten minutes later, what does she do? She phones her mum. (laughs) I could could hear the panic in her voice from the other side of the room. Mum, I'm going to get a detention. We've barely moved. Now, she'd heard what I'd said. But as time had ticked on, the gap between what I'd told her and what she was experiencing was getting bigger and bigger. She said to him, Em said to her, why don't you get off the bus and walk? And obviously this was too much at this point for Grace, because she started crying and she said, I don't know the way from here. I'm gonna get detention, what should I do? It was horrible. I could hear that she was alone, she was scared. And she just wanted one of us with her. Every paternal instinct in me was roused. I said to him, tell her I'll be there in a minute. So I jumped on my pedal cycle and I rode across Jessington. And I pulled up next to the bus which was stood in standstill traffic, banged on the window, the bus driver let her off. Her face was all blotchy because she'd been crying. I gave her a hug and I said, it's going to be fine. And she said, am I still going to get a detention? And I said, no, I'll walk with you, we'll walk together. If the tears and doubts of a small child can make a sinful, earthly father get on his bike and ride across town, what do you think it's going to do to our loving Heavenly Father? For me to keep my promises, it didn't cost me very much at all. But for God to keep his promise, he had to die in our place. One of his promises is he will never leave us. If if you're a Christian, do you see that in your doubts and your fears, the Father's heart of compassion is not driven from you, it's pulled towards you. He's not cold and indifferent. He wants to comfort you like the loving Father that he is. When what you see doesn't match what he's promised, don't keep it yourself. Bring it to him in prayer. Look to the cross. You see, on the cross, we see that even out of the very worst event in all of history, God is able to work his greatest triumph. In the cross, we don't necessarily find all the answers we like to the problem of evil and suffering. But we see a God who loves his people so much, he's willing to die for them. He will die to keep his promises. Does that sound like the kind of father you need to second guess? Does it sound like the kind of father that you think, I can't bring my doubts to him? Does that sound like the kind of father who doesn't want the very best for you? So finally, will you stop hiding your doubts? Will you bring them to him in prayer? God restates his promises to Abraham in this passage at least three times. Are you repeatedly listening to his promises? He's written them down in a book. It's the best-selling book in all of history, and it's full of not only promises, it's full of illustrations and stories and pictures, but it essentially is about God's promises for what he has in store for those that he loves. Are you reading it? And more than that, do you know the one that this book is all about? Thankfully, the Christian faith is not about our ability to comprehend a book. It's about our ability to know the person the book is all about, Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Have you experienced the life-giving, life-changing love that only he can bring you? Do you know Jesus? It wasn't enough to write down his promises. God put them in a person and he sent that person to die in your place. Let me finish by reading the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ Jesus.